Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you October 20th, night one of the 2020 World Series, the October Classic as it's known. And we got it up on the screen right now, Sam. The score is 0-0. Each side's got a hit and the Dodgers are coming to the plate in the bottom of the fourth. And we will be keeping our eye on this game. We'll be previewing the whole World Series and giving you our picks. But Sam, what else does this wonderful episode have in store? Yeah, we're just we're going to run through just some of the news we have in the sports world. And and we're for, for all you Alonzo Bet lovers, we're, we're doing a little throwback to the old format. We're going to start off with some news. Then we're going to do not necessarily a stat corner, but a stat E segment. Uh, we had a listener basically write in and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm sort of a baseball fan, not a huge one. And I'm getting into the playoffs for the first time this year. And I'm wondering sort of what are the differences between strategies in baseball in the regular season versus the playoffs. So we're going to do a quick segment sort of talking about playoff baseball strategy. And then that'll just dovetail right into our World Series preview and prediction. We're going to do deep dives on both these teams, talk about the matchup, talk about who we think is going to pull this out. And it's, I think it's just going to be a fun episode. Oh, it's got to be a fun episode because it's the World Series, baby. We never thought we'd be here this year. When we started this, if you go back to some of our freezing cold takes, I think we both gave the season getting to this point like a 30 to 40% uh, chance. And we're here. We beat our own odds, hopefully. And it's super exciting to be here. Um, Whereas in the last couple episodes, we've definitely given you a heavy dose of some other sports. Today, we are just going to stick to the news because the World Series is in our blinders. We can't see anything else. Um, But let's start in the NBA, where we have just a whole slew of executive and coach motion. I think the lead here, Sam, the number one story, is that Daryl Morey is stepping down as the Rockets GM. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, in some ways surprising because Daryl Morey has been one of the most influential and successful executives in the game for really, you know, a decade now. But it's also somewhat unsurprising because he created a lot of controversy before the season by tweeting out free Hong Kong. Uh, The NBA, of course, has a lot of business in China. And this caused sort of financial ramifications throughout the league. I have to say I was very saddened by sort of the – the way in which a lot of the players and coaches in the NBA were sort of turned on Mori for this, where they've, they've been very active about talking about social justice causes in the United States, but were not willing to do so when it sort of threatened their own, their own financial standing when it came to China. Um, and, you know, I, I give all the props to Daryl Mori for saying this, but, you know, let, let's, let's not so much talk about that and let's talk about what he did for basketball. Yeah. And I will say real quick here, Sam, that, um, I, I get what you're saying. I do. My understanding of the situation is that he actually stepped away from the team. There was no, um, like the ownership and the brass weren't trying to move him out of his position, but he decided he wanted to stay home with his kids a little bit more. And so he moved away from the team. Now, could that have been influenced by the Hong Kong situation? Absolutely. But let's talk about him, um, as a GM. I think if you had to sum it up in one word, I, he was really revolutionary. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and we're going to talk about another revolutionary GM when we get to some baseball news and Billy Bean, but I think Daryl Morey was really the, the money ball of basketball. Yeah. He's the guy who's, who basically realized, Hey, and the, the NBA is structured around people taking inefficient shots, which are mid range jumpers. The way to get points in the NBA most efficiently is to shoot three pointers because they are worth 50% more than two pointers <laughs> to, to shoot layups and dunks because they are scored with a very high percentage and to get to the free throw line because they are scored with at a very high percentage. And, uh, to do that, he basically got the basketball player who is built for this in James Hargan uh, in an absolute steal of a trade from the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, Where he, don't forget, won a sixth man of the year at one point in his career. Yeah, so, you know, he traded for an NBA MVP in James Hargan, now five times in a row top two in the NBA MVP voting. Um, and, you know... With James Hargan, he, he simply transformed the way basketball was played. If you look at you know, sort of the percentage of three-pointers that were taken 10 years ago versus now, it's basically like you're looking at a different sport. And I'd argue that that is, you know, has a lot, a lot, a lot to do with the way that Daryl Morey built the Houston Rockets around analytics. Yeah, Sam, and I saw this absolutely great tweet um, and I wish I wish I could credit uh, who did it so everyone could go see it. But it compared the 2020 shot tar- uh, chart team by team to a shot chart for each team uh, from like 2005, 2006. And for those of you who don't know, a shot chart shows like basically sized dots. The bigger the dot, um, the more frequently players shoot in that zone. Uh, you can do it with color too. Same idea. Um, and in 2005, 2006, wherever it was, what you had were, you know, some three-point shooting, mostly from the corners, um, or, or mostly actually from the, like, offset from the uh, top of the key, but a lot of inside shot, a lot of mid-range. Every team had a combo of those. The Rockets were the only team that were mostly three-point and mostly in the paint. You go to 2020, Every single team, and I would actually argue that this really changed with the Warriors, but the it was all put in place by what Maury was doing. Um, in 2020, every single team, bar none, took almost no mid-range jump shots, took all three-pointers and all shots in the paint. And, uh, you know, again, I think that the Warriors winning with that strategy so consistently because the Rockets under that strategy, under Daryl Maury, never won a championship. Yeah, Which is disappointing, but I agree that he was the one who put all that into motion with Mike D'Antoni, who started on the Suns years before. Yeah, and and I, I think I saw that same tweet. I forget who it was by. Uh, there, there's one more thing I want to talk about with Maury, and it actually relates to the Warriors. And it's something that I want to just give him massive props for, which is that the Warriors sort of, after winning 73 games, they signed Kevin Durant. And the rest of it, the rest of the league basically just gave up. You know, they said yeah. this team's too good. We're we're just, there's no point in trying to compete with them. We're just sort of gonna, you know, stay put and prepare ourselves to pounce like when this dynasty is over. Yeah. And, and Daryl Morey said, you know, no, you know, this league's about winning, and we're gonna try to we're gonna try to beat this team. And to their credit, he went out and got Chris Paul. 
And they were up 3-2 against that team Mm -hmm. in the Western Conference Finals. And Chris Paul pulled his hamstring. Yeah. Now, it's impossible to say, you know, what would have happened if Chris Paul hadn't pulled his hamstring. Maybe they still end up losing that series. But I'll also note that they missed... You know, Cody Bellinger, by the way, with a two-run tater right now. Dodgers up 2 nothing with one out in the fourth. Wow, my stream must be, like, so far behind yours because Will Smith is just grounding out. Well, and to be honest, <laughs> uh, Bellinger just finished rounding the bases, so I was a little bit late on that call. But for all you uh, listening tomorrow morning, if you're re-watching it at home, hopefully we're synced up perfectly. Yeah, stop with the spoilers from now on. Just wait <laughs> like 30, 30, 40 seconds. Um, okay, but but what I was going to say is that, you know, they also missed 17 straight threes in that game seven. Like, they were as close as it gets to throwing the best team ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Well, I mean, actually, Oklahoma City the year before that was closer, but. Well, no, I mean, the, the Cavs were closer because they, they beat them then. Sure, but in the Western Conference. Sure, sure. Um, but that was before Durant. Yeah, and that's why Durant went there, little cupcake guys. <laughs> he's gonna come after us on Twitter. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna hear this somehow and come after us. He's so petty. Um, I I agree with you, Sam. I think that deserves to be commended. What I will say is that if you were an owner or if I were an owner, I don't know if we would have made that decision because look. They got close, and you never know what would have happened without Chris Paul. But they they didn't do it, and they hurt themselves in the long run. Of course, they compounded that by tr- trading, you know, Chris Paul for Russ, which, yikes. But, um, but yes, all credit to Maury. Hope he has fun, you know, with his family, doing family stuff or whatever they do. Um, there were a number of coaching moves made as well, and I'm just kind of going to run through these. Uh, Clippers named Ty Lue their head coach. He, of course, won uh, a ship with LeBron James in Cleveland. The Pacers hire a guy named Nate Bjorkgren, um, which I just trying to learn how to pronounce that for this uh, episode here made me feel bad for all NBA sideline reporters. That's just tough. Um, And then. Oh, and then the second. And no, and then the Sixers hired. Oh, and then the Sixers hired Doc. Yes, sorry. Wow. Looking at my notes, just missing lines here, folks. Um, Sixers hired Doc. I don't know. Doc keeps getting jobs. Is he good at coaching? We've talked about this before. Is he bad at coaching? I don't know. But uh, the Sixers actually can't win with that roster anyway, in reality. Like, there's a lot of good teams in basketball, and they just can't win with that. Um, So... Interesting move. Of course, our Philly native fans will either like it or hate it, but it it truly doesn't matter. They'll never win a championship with that roster. Um, Take us through a couple pieces of NFL news, Sam, your big uh, football head. Sure. I mean, so one is that the Jets released Le'Veon Bell. And I think this was not so much. Well, Le'Veon Bell was dissatisfied with his playing time under offensive genius Adam Gaze. Uh, I am using genius in an ironic way, folks. Um, so, you know, the Jets looked to trade him. They really had no takers because of his salary. So I think they really did what was somewhat of a favor to Bell himself and, and released him and let him go find the contender. 
And oh boy, did he find one. He went to the Kansas City Chiefs, much to my chagrin, as I have Clyde Edwards Hilaire, Hilaire, the H is silent, on my fantasy team. I wouldn't be too worried. I see Le'Veon being like the reboot of LaShawn McCoy, basically, on that team. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, though, he is going to cut into Clyde's production. Uh, no, no doubt, no doubt. And More then so uh, Daryl or Darren Williams did. Yeah, so I mean, obviously that's just another weapon for the Chiefs. Like, I don't think it moves the needle in either direction. Like, running backs don't really matter all that much. And it's not as if they the Chiefs... can. Look at Derrick Henry in that Tennessee game. They don't look, win that game without him. Look what happened. I mean, like, yeah, running backs can have good games, but look what's happened to the Panthers where they had what, who was supposedly the best running back in the league, just got the biggest running back contract ever, Christian McCaffrey, and they've just seamlessly replaced him with Mike Davis. Like, running backs uh, the, are, More like the legend Mike Davis. <laughs> run, running backs are largely it, – it's very hard to disentangle their production from scheme and offensive line. One, yes, obviously. Uh, that's not to say that having a running game is not important to a team. Uh, but then the other big piece of news is that the Dolphins, I think somewhat surprisingly, have decided to name Tua Tagovailoa their, their starter. Yeah, and this is a guy who absolutely ran show at Alabama. Um, you can remember him coming in, uh, or was he replaced? No, no, he was coming in for Jalen Hurts, right? Yeah, he replaced Jalen Hurts. He replaced Jalen Hurts, like after Jalen Hurts has this amazing season, and he leads Alabama to the title comeback. Alabama, of course, one of the most annoying sports teams in uh, in all of sports. Just, just really, really uh, not likable. Um, but he just had two great seasons, um, passing for almost 4,000 yards in 2018, uh, which is just absolutely insane with 43 tuds. And of course that year, he also, uh, just ran for a cool 190 just to be sure about it. But the big news here is that like, this isn't fair to our guy, Ryan Fitzmagic, who's thrown for more yards than Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Carson Wentz, Aaron Rodgers, Ryan Tannehill, Brewtrees, Matthew Stafford this year. They're saying we're good. You know, yeah. thank you, but we're good. Yeah, so I, be, I mean, that is where I have a problem with this move in that Ryan Fitzpatrick has legitimately played like a top 10 quarterback in the NFL this year. He's done this before. I mean, he did it in 2015 for the Jets. Uh, of course, he had sort of one of his bad Fitzpatrick games in the last game of the season when they could have clinched a playoff berth. Um, but, you know, like this Dolphins team, especially with three wildcard teams this year, is in the thick of the playoff race. They're three yeah. and three. Uh, so the question is, you know, does it make sense to move to your future now? Now, sort of my, my read on the situation is I think the Dolphins had this plan all along to switch to Tua after the bye. And that's why it's happening now. Um, and they, you know, Tua, of course, had a pretty serious hip injury to end his college career. And, you know, people didn't, didn't know that he was going to be healthy to start the season. And maybe they wanted to give him some time to show he was healthy and then bring him in after the bye. He's the future. He, like, by all accounts, he's going to be a great quarterback. But, again, yeah, given that the, the Dolphins really do have a chance to make a playoff push and, and Fitzpatrick's playing so well, you got to feel bad for the guy. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, He'll, you know, he'll be fine. He always goes somewhere. He always, you know, plays well when he's there as a starter or a backup. He'll be fine, but I I had a really good year this year. I will say if you are the Cowboys, if you are the Bears, if you are the Colts, you know, all teams with questions at the quarterback position right now, but who expect to be contenders. Wow, the Colts. That's tough. Philip Rivers has been really good this year. Uh, his most recent game was good. He's, he's made a lot of, you know, questionable turnovers. Um, what? Philip Rivers has seven. Uh, oh, sorry. Six INTs. Yeah. Which is like middle of the pack for starting quarterbacks. Yeah. Hey, he also, you know, he hasn't really looked like he can push the ball downfield, which of he course. Can't he can't throw the He cannot throw the yeah. ball further than 20 yards. Which is, of course, what uh, what's what Fitzmagic uh, specializes in. Just yeah, he, he's a specialist. Yeah. Here's something interesting, Sam. The leading passer this year in terms of pass yards is still Dak Prescott. Yeah. After, after missing a game and a half, he is still has more yards than anybody else in all of football. And it honestly took a heroic Matt Ryan performance last week to even get close to it. Matt Ryan's only 13 yards behind him. But that's only because he threw for like 2 million yards last week. Um, Interesting move here by the Dolphins. I don't agree with it either, Sam. But, uh, you know, bad franchises are going to mismanage themselves. That's what they do. They excel in mismanagement. You know, I I don't quite agree with that characterization. Like, I think Brian Flores is building a good culture there. Um, And again, like... I'm, I'm not sure this is the wrong decision for the Dolphin for the future of the Dolphins franchise. It just feels just shitty to, to Fitzpatrick. That, that's really where I that's I fair. Take problem. And I guess also like you can look at Herbert being thrust in who like, I don't think anybody saw him as a more NFL ready quarterback than Tua coming into this. Yeah. exactly. Um, and he's just been a stud. So maybe what you need is, is some youth on your roster. We'll see. Um, okay. Enough of all these pretender sports, enough of all these fakers and phonies. We're going to where it all matters, baby. We're going to the MLB, and we're just going to start you off with an appetizer, something easy, uh, you know, a short bit of news. And it's interesting, though. It is extremely interesting. Billy Bean, the GM of the A's, the archetype of the Moneyball movie, the inspiration for a transcendent Jonah Hill performance. Yeah. Which, which, may, which then probably gave way to his Wolf of Wall Street performance. It definitely gave way to his Wolf of Wall Street performance because he plays a very similar character. Well, I, would so, call them, I would call them similar. No, I would. I mean, yeah, they're like, they're living in totally different worlds. But like that guy is a similar guy just placed in two different environments. No. <laughs> but let's move on. <laughs> yeah, we need you find us on our cinema podcast where we talk about this. So Billy Bean is stepping down, uh, and for what actually is an extremely interesting reason, Billy Bean acquired stake in some like uh, investment and acquisition company that just bought a stake in the Red Sox, and so that creates a conflict of interest for Billy Bean. And he said, "I'm just gonna, I'm gonna dip. I'm gonna." In- you know, continue to diversify my portfolio. Um, and uh, I'm going to move on from being a general manager. 
I think it makes sense. You know, he had a good run. Um, this seems like it could have been the year for them. They definitely have some pitchers that are maturing. They're definitely still going to compete. Um, but, you know, maybe he's not the guy there anymore. So I think from both perspectives, both Billy's and the A's, um, this kind of makes sense. And I'm excited to see what happened. There's a great blueprint there for that franchise. And I could see a guy like Theo going there um, in a couple of years. I could see them getting some young, uh, you know, smart, progressive guy from one of the bigger uh, market teams and, and doing well. So I'm excited to see what the A's do. They're fun to watch. Yeah, I will note that interestingly enough, uh, you know, as all viewers of the movie Moneyball would know, the the owner of the Red Sox, John Henry, who uh, you know is is a co-investor with with Billy Bean, uh, has long tried to lure Billy Bean over to the Red Sox. Uh, Billy Bean will not be taking on a role with the Red Sox, but he is actually considering taking on a role in uh, in the premier league club owned by John Henry, which is Liverpool, I think. And that's, oh, long he is. I, I, I'm not sure that he's going to do this, but I think he's considering it. And that, that has long been actually an outside interest of Billy beans in um, wanting to sort of bring more of a, a money ball approach to, uh, to European Soccer, football. Yeah. And actually, I think that's an interest of Daryl Moore. In America, Sam, it's, yeah soccer <laughs> well i was i was i was specifying european um, european but then you have to say football well no not not if i'm for instance from england <laughs> <laughs> okay good point good point <laughs> um but yeah i actually think that's also an interest of daryl Morey's, interestingly enough so they they've both identified a uh, uh football as uh, the next, uh, the next, uh, the next path next for, revolution of uh, analytics, basically the next sport for analytics to conquer. Interestingly enough, they both make like weird cryptic um, statements in both the articles I read about them where Daryl Morey was like, I'm excited to spend more time with my family and see what the future has in store for me. And like Billy Bean says something along the lines of like, you know, it's been great being in Oakland. I'm excited to have more time with my family, standard line, and uh, let and pursue other sports business ventures. So, like, they're, yeah, they're on to something. Um, and that's, I'm excited for that. That's cool. Um, but, of course, he'll be missed in the MLB where he, again, is a very revolutionary GM. He is the impetus for the analytics revolution, um, which a lot of teams picked up quietly after uh, you know, I don't think he set an example even necessarily, like he had some success. I just think other teams picked up on what he was doing and were like, yes, obviously correct. And then the adoption took some time as we know. Yeah, um, and now the, the game is, has moved like leaps and bounds forward because of what he did. Like 100% without Billy Bean, you wonder where we are today. Are we even in 2010? you know, where like analytics were still, we were looking at OPS, like, wow, that, you know, that could be a good predictor of a player's skill. Um, I, I don't know. No one knows, but he, he has been a, a great asset to the game. So we're sorry to see him go excited to see what he does in the future with that. Um, let's head back over to our favorite corner. Every room has four corners. We have one corner that we love more than the others. And that corner is the stack corner. In this episode, Stack Corner, coming to you for the first time in, uh, honestly, a number of episodes, 
we're not going to focus on a specific stat, but we're going to address, as Sam mentioned at the top of the episode, one of our viewers' questions. So we had a viewer write in who, interestingly enough, this time is not named Vince from New Jersey. Um, he is a different viewer, believe it or not. We might have two. And uh, he wanted to know how much different is a team strategy, is a manager's strategy in the playoffs versus the regular season. Um, and we wanted to talk about that. And then we wanted to take it a step further and talk about how different our playoff strategies this year with no days off compared to other playoffs with days off. So that's just a little preview, but I'll let Sam kind of roll us into this. Um, and then we'll kind of get into the nitty gritty of what it means to play an MLB playoff series. Yeah, sure. So I think like really the main difference, as you noted in years past, has been that there are more off days built into a series for travel. And because of that, pitchers who, and especially starting pitchers who need a certain amount of time off between every time they pitch, are basically able to pitch more often on a game-by-game -game basis, not necessarily on a day-by-day -day basis. And I think a great example of that is, is last year's World Series champions who leaned heavily on their top three starting pitchers Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin, who started 13 of the national 17 postseason games last year and pitched almost 60% of the nationals postseason innings as opposed to 40% of their regular season innings. So right there, what we're seeing is basically more elite pitching on the mound and pitchers who are maybe at the back of the rotation are often moved into the bullpen where they can then pitch some more high leverage bullpen innings where their stuff can play up. Yeah. And I think that pitching is the number one area of differentiation. So let's start there. We'll talk about hitting lineup construction managers decisions a bit, but let's start with pitching. So in the regular season, with the exception of maybe, you know, four, 10 max games at the end of the season. There are no real starting pitching decisions. You just roll your guy out there every fifth day. When you get an injury, you plug someone in to replace him until he sucks. And then you plug someone else out. I'm oversimplifying, but the formula is not really challenged. Um, we now have teams that employ openers, which breaks that just a bit, but even the opening schedule they kind of have their guys they like. They kind of have the order they like to roll them out in. And they change it up a bit to win games. But it's, it's not very heady stuff. Now, in a normal playoff series, again, sticking to starting pitching, in a normal playoff series, your job as a manager is typically how often can I throw my best pitchers? You are looking to push... I use that term lightly, but you are looking to push your best starters to throw as many innings as possible, because typically your best starters are your best pitchers on the team. And even if they're, oh my God, sorry, Sam, I just couldn't stop myself. Kevin Kiermeyer leaves the yard off Clayton Kershaw on a two out, two strike pitch and Tampa's down two to one. Wow. Watch these guys go. Wow. So, Sorry, sorry. It was just a gut reaction, but I had to say something. Um, so 
you, a manager typically saying, how often can I throw my best pitchers? How, how many innings can I eat with what I know for sure is quality? So you're fighting two things then as a manager that you're considering. You're considering arm strength. A guy's always going to tell you he's good, but does he really have his arm today? And you're fighting uh, fatigue and multiple times around the order because you want to pitch your best pitcher as much as possible. But everybody knows that that third time around the order is tough. And in the playoffs, even the second time around the order gets tough because everybody is zoned the fuck in. There's so much preparation for all of this. So it's, it is a really tough balancing act. Now come to this year's playoffs, no games or no days off. Basically the world series is going to have a few, but there's been very few to no days off. Now the manager is trying to be back on his regular schedule, but he's hyper vigilant to blow up starts. You absolutely cannot start a fourth or fifth quality starter type guy in the playoffs. He's going to get rocked because everybody, again, they're locked in. So instead they're throwing one, two, three, and then they're mixing up bullpens and half starts by guys. Tyler Glass now came out and threw two innings two days after he had a start already this series. The, the calculus has changed. And from the manager's perspective on starting pitchers in, in this year's playoff format, which honestly, I kind of hope we go back to it close. It more closely mirrors the regular season. And I love the jam packed action, but that's- let, let, let me be clear. You hope they you go back. They go back to no off days, not 16 teams, right? Oh yes. Oh my God. If they stay at 16 teams, I'll lose my mind. But it, I actually think the no off days is kind of cool. I think it's, it's more baseball, but, but it's not, uh, it's not possible if, if they're, if they're moving to different cities. Ah, uh, it's very strenuous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, good point. Good point. Anyway. So now what you have is you have these guys trying to get their best pitchers out there. And we've seen the two teams with the best starting pitching end up in the world series as a result of that. Um, so. Well, I would argue the Reds had better starting pitching. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's a reasonable discussion, but I don't know if I think Bauer Castillo and gray, you know, they were pitching really hot but I don't know if Bauer Castillo Gray is actually a better trio than Glass now Morton Snell. Well, if anything, I would have given them over the Dodgers. Oh, yeah. It depends on what you think about Clayton right now, but I, I do want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about the bullpen and I want to talk about the lineup construction because I think they're both interesting. The bullpen used to be, similar to the starting pitchers. It was how often can I get my two guys out there, my setup guy and my closer. But now what you want to do is you want to work in all these random guys in the middle of games. And so what we're seeing, and this isn't from a, a managerial perspective, because from a managerial perspective, relievers are now a bit um, hand tied by the three batter rule. So managers are still making decisions, but they're basically matchup and game oriented there's no difference from how they might make those decisions except for added scrutiny in the regular season but from a organizational standpoint now you teams are trying to get like the the rays they're trying to get guys in their bullpen who maybe they're a failed starter or maybe they were a bad closer or you know maybe uh the Rays just see something and the Astros have done this to an extent too. And you want to take a guy who never had success in a role that he was previously in and 
and put him in a place where his stuff works. So you have random guys like John Curtis coming in and throwing two or three great innings for the Rays right now. They have this whole parade of random relievers who can throw an arbitrary number of innings. And this is how you win these series now is you have relievers who can throw two, three good innings when they're on and they can do it consistently because they're relievers. You have ex starters who throw absolute gas for an inning and a half. If you need a fireballer, you mix it up and you find the edge uh, to win these series. And that's what the Rays have done. Um, and so if I am pointing, I uh, will talk about this in a sec, but if I'm pointing to one thing that I love about the Rays in this series, it's their bullpen and the way that they use it. Yeah. Please record that so that you can put it on freezing cold takes when their bullpen has a <laughs> six, seven ERA this series. Yeah. And I, and I think we, we've like sort of danced around this point, but like, let me just explicitly state it. Another main difference is that and this is especially true if you're talking about an elimination game is you have to manage the game like there's no tomorrow. It's not like, oh, we're saving this guy to pitch tomorrow. It's like, if it's a game seven, it's all hands on deck. It doesn't matter if you're gassed, like just whatever it takes to win that game. Well, it matters if you're gassed, if you're not going to be effective, but. Right. But uh, Sam also, not every game is a game seven. And I think those are the most interesting decisions the cat and something the casual baseball fan misses understandably so because the game can get so intricate at times but the decision of do i down by two runs in the eighth inning or three runs or wherever your cutoff in your head is do i throw my best reliever here who is already stressed and if i throw him i might not have him tomorrow for a game that we're leading and i need him to protect the lead do i throw him to keep the game close and give us a shot or do i hold on to him and when you hear managers criticize, that's almost always the decision. It's either leaving a starter in for too long or doing something like that. So keep your eye open for that. That's going to be a huge question in this series with the way both of these teams use pitchers and Dave Roberts' criminal mismanagement of his bullpen uh, in the past. Yeah. Again, we'll, and get to we'll, we'll get to that. So with that, let, let's move in. Well, hold, hold on. Gonna... Sorry, sorry. I, I know this is a bit, but I do want to talk about lineup is just the last thing here because it is a totally different discussion a manager in the regular season is doing really one of two or three things he's either getting his team ready to play in the playoffs they're trying to make their way into the playoffs or they're rebuilding let's discard rebuilding for a second if you are trying to make your way into the playoffs or setting yourself up for the playoffs you play your best players i don't care if Tyler Naquin is uh, 11 for his last uh, 18 with four bombs, you are playing your best players at any given time. If a guy needs a rest, play the hot hand, whatever. Give him a couple games, but you are playing your best players. In the playoffs, and this does not change, this is not affected by the days off for position players, in my opinion. For the playoffs, besides maybe catcher, where eventually you're playing your backup catcher a game, you as a manager are trying to put the lineup out there every day. Like it's your last day. Like you have to win one ball game. And when you're trying to win one ball game, a lot of times, if not most of the time, a manager is going to put their hottest hitters out there. They're going to play trends. They're going to play slumps. They're going to play hot streaks. So you see something happen like where earlier in the season, Corey Seager is hitting fifth, sixth, seventh at one point in the lineup and Bellinger is hitting two, three. Now Corey Seager's always hitting two. Bellinger just moved down to the sixth spot 
because some guys are hot, some guys are not. Randy Rosarena now has more postseason at-bats than he did in the regular season. Some guys are hot, some guys are not. And that strategy as a manager to balance those two things of, well, my opinion is that this player is a better player than this player. Player X is better than player Y. But player Y is unconscious right now. He's so on fire. Do I play him and risk malfeasance in the field or risk some type of blow up on the base pads or confusion at the plate because I don't think he's as good? Or do I ride the hot hand? Most of the time what you see is these managers are going to ride the hot hand. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I agree with, with, with mostly everything you said, which is just that, yeah, there's, all these games need to be managed like I'm going to do what absolutely maximizes my probability of winning today. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe with pitchers, you'll, you'll give up on some day when you're down a few runs or something, but, uh, and live to fight another day. But yeah, it's just every pitch is so much more high leverage than in the regular season that you have to treat it that way because the regular season's a marathon the playoffs are a sprint and you gotta, you gotta get to the, the world series and hold up that trophy. So with that, let's move to the world series. And yeah. Uh, Let's move to the world series. Um, Do you want to start Sam with the Dodgers or the Rays? Well, we're going to tell you guys, we're going to go through, you know, how they got there, the battles they fought, whatever. We're going to talk about what we like about these teams. And we're going to talk about, um, some question marks, you know, Sam and I were discussing the episode and at first we said strengths and weaknesses. And then Sam's like, look, these teams don't really have real weaknesses. They have some question marks. They have some high variance positions. Um, so we went with question marks and, uh, do we want to start in the national league, the good old boys league, as we like to call it us national league fans, um, or the American league, the new age progressive league, as we like to call it. <laughs> Let, let's start with the with the Dodgers, but but before okay. we before we do that, I just want to make a quick point, which is that for all our hand wringing about you know how random the playoffs are and how sixteen teams are so dumb, we do have the number one seed from both leagues in the World Series. Now, I I don't expect this to happen every year if we go to a sixteen team playoff, and I think it's somewhat just a stroke of luck, and I hope it's not used as evidence to say, oh, look, a 16-team playoff's fine. We're going to move forward with it. Uh, but, but I do think it is kind of funny. Yeah, I was honestly appalled you said that because, like, it's not surprising that we have the two best teams. But it is less likely that this would have been the outcome than if it had been an 18-team playoff. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, there was a 30-whatever percent chance that it was going to be these two teams. Maybe probably a little bit less than that. Probably less. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a stroke of luck. But – it's also not. <laughs> They're still the two best teams, and they've played amazing baseball. So let's start with the Dodgers, who truly played amazing baseball. They swept the Brewers in the wild card round. They said, get out of here. They swept the Padres in the NLDS. They said, we don't do interdivisional rivals, except the D-backs, so we have a tough rivalry. <laughs> and then they got to the Braves, and uh, they went down. 3-1 to the Braves. 3-1? 3-1. 3-1. They went down 3-1 to the Braves. The Braves blew a 3-1 lead. Oh, boy. 
And the Falcons blew that big lead too. Wow. Tough for yeah. Atlanta. Wow. And and the Hawks traded Luka Doncic. It's been a tough oh, year. Oh my God. So tough for Atlanta. Yeah. Um, who, by the way, let me just say, because we never really talked about the NLCS. The Braves are a really good team. And Snit is a really, really good manager. And I heard him today because basically, if you want to point to one thing in game seven of the NLCS game, that was the difference maker. It's the double play with the bases loaded and nobody out. What a terrible, terrible, no, not base loaded, second and third. Second and third and nobody out. And that's one of the worst base running plays I've ever seen in a big spot in baseball. I think it's the worst I've ever seen in person in a big spot. The way that Snit addressed it in this interview. In person, you weren't at the game. Sorry, as a human, like watch a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So Snit in this interview basically says, look, we're a really good team who is getting more playoff experience. We did things right all year. We made some fundamentals mistakes in that game. Like that's just how it goes. And I thought that was the perfect response because it really is. If you play that exact game, if you play that exact position out 25, 150, 250 times, that's not a common outcome. That uh, did not represent that team to me, even though Austin Riley's a bad base runner. Who It's really his fault that it happened like that. Even though Austin Riley's a bad base runner, that is a good team who didn't make those mistakes. That, that's not really their weakness. Um, and so for them to get beat like that has to be absolutely gut-wrenching, especially for a guy like Freddie Freeman who – God, I love him so much. He's so good at baseball. He seems like such a cool guy. Um, and I just love that he beats up on the Mets all the time. Um, one, Jake. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jake, but, Jake and, and Freddie have a, have a really deep respect for each other. Like Freddie, Oh, my God. Yeah. But, but you could tell, like, after every at-bat they have with each other, they're, like, smiling at each other because, like, they just enjoy I the think I think they're also kind of friends, but they do yeah. have, like, a – very friendly rivalry where they respect the hell out of each other. Um, this was an awesome series. If I see it five more times, no. Okay. Let's be realistic. If I see it three more times in the next eight years, I will not be surprised. I'll just say that right now. These yeah, are the two uh, deepest and best run organizations in the national league right now. I mean, the thing is the Braves are going to have trouble beating the Steve Cohen led Mets in the NL East. Okay. So that's how the Dodgers got there. <laughs> Sam, that's how the Dodgers got there. Um, and now they're here. How did they get here? You know, what did what brought them to this point in your opinion, Sam? I mean, again, like you said, these teams don't really have any weaknesses, but if we're gonna talk about the you know, the capital S strength of this team, it's a lineup. I mean, it's Mookie Betts, Corey Seeger, Justin Turner. Max Muncy, Max Muncy, Kobe Bellinger, the reigning NL MVP, is batting sixth in these games. I mean, AJ Pollock. They have Kike Hernandez coming off the bench a lot. Chris Taylor. They have Will Smith, who is quietly like maybe the best hitting catcher in the game right now. Uh, I'm sure. Watch out for no, seriously, guys, watch out for him next year. His stats, especially if you play fantasy, his stats yeah. didn't pop off the page but his underlying metrics are absurd. This man is poised to straight up be the best offensive catcher in baseball next year. 
you got to watch out for him. He's an absolute monster. And I do have a a 20 to one uh, world series MVP bet on him. So hopefully he breaks out in this world series. Um, so Sam, to your point of strength here, which I don't disagree with, of course, to your point, they only had two regular starters. I guess three, if you include um, AJ Pollock under 700 OPS. Like, and Mookie was 695. Like, guys who I didn't think played well. You mean in the playoffs, right? No, just in the NLCS. I'm sorry. Sorry, in the NLCS. Just in the NLCS. Max Muncy was over 1,000. I I thought he had a bad series. Um, Obviously, Corey Seager was amazing. Justin Turner was 859. I thought he had a bad series. Well, there's the one game where they scored 15 runs. Like Uh, That that had to help, yeah. So, but their team is good. You're correct. Their lineup is very good. But to me, what got them here? They didn't have a single, not one blow up on the hill. Maybe Tony Gonsolin, maybe, but they kept it tight all series long. And they found a way to win. You know, their ERAs didn't look stellar coming out of it. But they always kept things in check. Credit to Dave Manager or uh, Dave Roberts. Dave Manager, that'd be a great name for a manager. Dave Roberts, who has historically done a very poor job at managing his bullpen. I thought he did a good job here, and the team hit just enough for them to win. Really curious so, decision by Yandy Diaz to throw home here. I'm sure you've already seen it. Yeah, I've already seen it. I, I just kind of Yandy. I think it's too much credit at first base. I do not think he is an exceptional first baseman. Um, what do you see for the Dodgers looking at the World Series now? And I know we haven't talked about the Rays yet, but what do you see as the Dodgers' weakness? What do they need to overcome? What question marks do they need to turn into exclamation points? Well, I, I had two main questions. One is, what Kershaw are we going to get? And it's funny I ask that because we are currently oh, yeah. in, in the top of the – we're currently in the, in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, and Clayton, you know, famously maybe the best pitcher of, of the last decade, has not been great in the World Series, in the, in the playoffs. He has, at this point, thrown – He hasn't been that bad, though, Sam. Don't perpetuate that narrative without the – um, without the side point that it's way overblown. He hasn't been that bad. He's I, not matched I, his regular season dominance. I agree with that. I agree with that. He hasn't been that bad. But at this point, it's a sample of 177 innings, which is almost a full regular season. And it is a 4.31 ERA. Now I'll note two things about that. One is he's had tremendously bad luck with relief pitchers allowing his inherited runners to score. Tremendously bad luck. And two is that he's often been left in too long by Dave Roberts and put in bad situations where he's sort of built to fail. In the seventh inning facing three, four, five. But I, do, but I also don't want to let him off the hook because as much as I want to say it's overblown that, oh, Kershaw's a choker in the playoffs. He's had some great playoff games. He's not the same. He has not been the same pitcher in his career in the playoffs as he be, as he's been in the regular season where he's regularly posting ERAs below two. Like I, I agree. That's a difference. And now, you know, I mean, at this point, 
the question, you know, he's through five. He just gave up a, a home run with two outs. As Will Smith knocks one into center field to score another run. This kid can hit, folks. Yeah. Uh, he Four just one Dodgers up. in the bottom of the fifth, one out, runners on the corners. He just gave up a home run with two outs in the fourth. And I'm curious to see if Dave Roberts puts him back out there because as we've he's seen. He's going to, especially after they score these runs, he's going yeah. to. But as we've seen time and time again in the playoffs, Clayton will deal for four innings and then just start giving up home runs as he gets through the order more times. And we'll see if he overcomes that tonight. Um, so that's my first question, because uh, uh, a good Clayton versus, versus a bad Clayton, especially when you could see him starting maybe three games in this series going game one if it goes seven games, that's, that, that could swing the series mightily. The second question I have, and this might be a little unfair, but it's, is the bullpen going to hold up? And I don't want to, like, give the impression that I think the Dodgers have a bad bullpen. Their bullpen was fantastic in the regular season. It was second and fifth. But I, you know, watching them pitch in the playoffs, I'm not sure there's one guy that I just, like, really trust to bring in in that high leverage situation and get the big out the way I do. You hit my weakness on the head. So I have questions about Kershaw. So I think that's a totally reasonable question. Um, but my question is less so about Kershaw and more about Dave Roberts. I expect four good innings out of Kershaw every time he's on the Hill. I'd love to see his playoff breakdown by inning because I bet his ERA over the first four innings is very close to his regular season ERA. My bigger question is, how can they get those outs that they absolutely need when the Rays have that look in their eyes that you always see in the playoffs, like, we're going to score here. We're going to get this game back. You always see teams mount these comebacks. Do they have a guy that they can go to? Because they've gone to Kenley at times. He's a heart attack. They call him Cardiac Kenley down in Los Angeles because he is just, he hurts. They have Joe Kelly, who they seem to think is their like absolute eliminator, but scares the hell out of me, especially for a team like the Rays who knows how to take their walks. Joe Kelly will miss the strike zone consistently. Yeah, he can definitely lose the strike zone. And then after that, you know, you got Pedro Baez. That's good. You got Bruce R. Gratterall, who they've closed with, but I'm definitely not trusting here. I mean, Blake, got Blake, yeah, Blake Trinan. Blake Trinan, yeah. who actually is probably my go-to guy at this point yeah. if I'm in this bullpen. Um, but, you know, he didn't pitch great in the NLCS. He gave up four earned in five and a third. That's pretty brutal. Yeah. So um, we'll see. You know who it could be, Sam? Although I think they'll uh, use him in a different way. It could be Julio Arias. He yeah. is actually their best guy out of the pen right now. And if they can avoid starting him, they could use him in a position to get two inning saves. I don't know. Yeah, and he was absolutely massive to close out game seven. They uh, sent him out for the ninth, and I was screaming. I said, Dave Roberts, what are you doing? You can't send him out for the ninth. He closed the door simply, easily. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was a bit sympathetic to, to Dave Roberts there because, like, I'm not sure about sending Kenley up, Kenley out for the ninth there, as you just called him, Cardiac Kenley. But also, you know, you really didn't want to have Ozzy Albius bat from the right side there. 
he's way, way, way better from the right side than the left. Urias is a lefty. No, I know. That's why I'm saying leaving Urias in was questionable. Oh, exactly. And that's exactly why I thought Ozzy Albies is not like, oh, he's a little better right-handed. All of Ozzy Albies hitting is right-handed. He is, um, he's an all-star caliber, like monster player right-handed and he's a league average hitter left-handed. He's one of those switch hitters where eventually you have to ask like, why are you still a switch hitter? Agreed. Agreed Um, 100%. One one crazy thing about Brewster Gregorall, which I I don't think I realized until the playoffs, is that this guy throws 101 miles per hour and he's literally in the first percentile in whiff rate. In oh, I, I didn't even think that's what you were going to say. You're right, though. That's crazy. Yeah. To me, what, what – well, hold on. Let's talk about that for a sec because that is just crazy. This guy throws – and it actually says something about the game. This guy throws harder than anybody in the major leagues effectively. You know, there's maybe two or three guys who throw harder than he does. No one misses his pitches because he has no break on his fastball. His fastball doesn't ride. It doesn't cut. It doesn't fade. It doesn't do anything. And And this just shows you major league players can hit fast pitching. What's hard to hit is fast pitching with any motion. It cannot deviate from its straight line motion. And it's, and it's interesting. You bring that up because his fastball spin rate is in the fifth percentile. So it's exactly what you said. The spin rate on his fastball is abysmal, even though he has the velocity and it's, and it's translated to like, literally getting swings and misses at a lower rate than basically any pitcher in the league. Which is crazy. But what I thought you were going to say about him. And by the way, I just saw the replay of that Yandy Diaz throw to home. And for those of you wondering, the corners were in runners on the corners. Um, Yandy Diaz gets a ball in the hole, throws on the run, no hesitation, no, no, uh, fumble in the transfer to home plate and they missed Mookie by an inch because Mookie got a perfect secondary lead and he broke on the crack of the bat. Great base running by Mookie. Unbelievable base running by Mookie. If his secondary is a step less, he does not get there. It was actually the right play by Yandy. It's where his momentum was taking him. There was no uncovering first base and he was already in. So he could have gone for turning two there. Um, not the way his, he backhanded it like back to second. Uh, it would have been tough. I think uh, I don't mind the placing in a slow but sorry to finish this conversation about Bruce Jar Gratterall. He has like one of the shortest arm actions in baseball. What I mean by that is from breaking from his mitt to releasing his arm makes the smallest circle possible. Like it's almost like he's a catcher. It comes barely to his hip. He never extends his arm or his body. He takes a short stride, no arm action, and hucks the ball 100 miles an hour every time. It is so counterintuitive to watch him because it doesn't look like he's trying to throw. It looks like he's lobbing the ball, and he throws 100 miles an hour. It's absolutely crazy. Um, But with that overview here, Dodgers are really good. Braves are good, too. We're going to see him in the future. The Dodgers lineup is mind-boggling like it is so good their pitching is the area that needs to show up if they're going to win these games so let's head over to the american league we got the tampa bay rays one of the smallest markets in baseball finally 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 getting to a world series no they were in 2008 they're in the world series 
Oh, I'm sorry. You're correct. Finally, finally, finally hoping to win a World Series. <laughs> and um, this was a very good team this year. It's been a very good team for a while. They finally were able to break through. They did it by sweeping the Blue Jays in the uh, wild card round. Then they got a super tough draw with the Yankees in the divisional series. They won that three to two. It went to five games. Then they got the Astros in the championship series who were on a heater. They took a lead on them. The Astros came back and then they were eventually able to close the door in seven games. They've faced much more adversity this off season or <laughs> this postseason. I'm sorry. than the Dodgers have. Um, well, I mean, the Dodgers were down three, one, like that's, that's some big. Yeah. Advantage. Yeah. But th- what I mean by that is the Rays had to beat the Yankees and the Astros. Sure. They just beat the Padres, the Braves. I see on par with the Astros, but they beat the Padres where the Rays had to beat the Yankees. So their road was tough for sure. Um, they're a good team though. They're an unconventional team. What do you see as their biggest strength? It's gotta be their pitching. And by that, I mean, both the starters and the depth of the relievers and Kevin Cash's ability to use his pitchers in the right situations in an unconventional way to maximize the efficiency of his staff. So let's start with the starters. When we talk about Glasnow, Charlie Morgan, and Blake Snell, that's a great top three. Although I will note that that Blake Snell has not been the same Blake Snell. Yeah, has not been the Cy Young Award winner that he was. Uh, two years ago as the Dodgers just keep bringing them across the plate five to one with Ryan Yarbrough and right now two outs in the bottom of the fifth this game's getting out of hand I will say I'm now regretting not making a Cody Bellinger MVP bet because this kid is just locked in Um, I am happy that I took the alternate line on the Dodgers tonight at minus one and a half though well yeah I mean Cody Cody did pop out in in this at bat but I, I guess I'm really far behind you. Uh, I, assumed, I, I assumed he was going to drive it in after you said that. Uh, he, he did pop out in that bat, but it was just a great long at bat, and he really does look locked in at the plate. Um, and to bring us back on topic, Sam, I agree that the Rays pitching is their strength, um, but, you know, I'm, lo- I'm looking at their pitching staff. I don't think that John Curtis, Pete Fairbanks, Josh Fleming, Aaron Loop, Shane McClanahan, Aaron Sledgers, and Ryan Thompson are the bullpen that is a strength of a World Series contender right now. I think their organization and their front office, including the manager. You left out Nick Anderson, who's basically been the best or second best reliever in baseball this year. Uh, Even though he had an 831 ERA in the ALCS, I, I do agree with you. Um, and Jose Alvarado, who's amazing. Um, Diego Castillo actually got taken off this roster. No, I think, I think Alvarado was, was left off the roster. Yeah, sorry, vice versa. Um, they're very similar pitches, pitchers. If you've ever seen their two-seam fastballs, you can, you can talk to me about them, the exact same pitch. Yeah. But, um, yes, uh, so they have some good guys in the bullpen for sure. But the thing that we were just talking about is in this short series, you need depth in there. You need guys who can do a bunch of things. And the Rays not only have them, they have them for nothing. They've picked them up as free agents. They've picked them up as 
uh, players to be named later in trades as guys nobody wanted. And they've capitalized on specific advantages that these pitchers have. I do not think that this bullpen under any other organization in baseball is really going to be a difference maker um, in a series. I, the Rays use them perfectly. I agree with that. And, and I saw a really cool chart on Twitter which basically showed like the arm angles of all the Rays relievers. Uh-huh. And it looks like an octopus, baby. Like, like, no, it, it looks like the, uh, the like Hindu dance where all the arms go out at different times. Yeah. It's like, they're like, like they're just giving these hitters so many different looks. And since they understand, like, you know, unless basically, unless it's like glass now pitching, like we're not going to have these guys go three times through the order. Like, these hitters are getting different looks every time they're up. And it's like, it's gotta be disorienting for them. And it's gotta be hard for them to get comfortable at the plate facing this array of pitchers that the Rays throw out there at you. Absolutely. And that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because um, what I'm curious to see and I really only think the actions of other teams in the future will, will give us this insight is the effectiveness of the Rays pitching staff that the management has found something in the way they pitch and unlocked it? Or is it that they truly use them in some combination, in some order, and in some matchups that make them more effective than being used in other spots? I don't know the answer, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. Um, But any way you slice it, the Rays pitching is what they need to come through. And an example here is that you see Ryan Yarbrough come on in a 3-1 game with Tyler Glass now in trouble, runners on base. He hasn't given up his own run yet, but he's now given up two Glass now runs, or uh, it was 4-1. He's now given up two Glass now runs at 6-1. There's two runners on, and they need their relievers to come in and shut doors like that. That's the yeah. tough thing about having a lot of guys who are multi-inning, kind of longer guys, more marathon than sprint guys, is that they don't always have that stuff to definitely put away one guy. Um, we're going to have to see how it plays out here. Um, to, to answer I, your question, though, before we move on, the one you just said, is it that the Rays are making these guys into good yes. answers? Sorry, that was rhetorical, but I'd love an answer if you have one. Well, I think it, first of all, that it has to be some combination of the two. But I, I think it's probably more the former than the latter. Like, I think, yes, obviously using pitchers in the, like, in situations where they're set up to succeed is important. But at the end of the day, like, you know, a pitcher needs to be pitching, like, good and be effective to succeed against good hitters, whether, you know, whether they're being used in the fourth inning or the eighth inning. And I, and the race pitchers are just undoubtedly achieving that. So I think right. the Rays have something in the organization where they are just undoubtedly figuring out how to maximize the talents of pitchers. And that obviously has something to do with putting them in situations to succeed. But I think it also has a lot to do with just putting like making them good pitchers, making them succeed. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Sam. And, and, and that's why I agree with your take that, like, this bullpen's not elite, like, if these guys aren't all on the Rays. But, like, because the Rays have made these pitchers very good to elite, their bullpen is elite. Right, right. 
So if you had to pinpoint a, a question mark or a weakness, what would you, what would you pick out? I mean, it's, it's the lineup and, you know, the Rays have not hit all that well through the playoffs and their best three hitters in the regular season who are Brandon Lau, Willie Adamas, and, and um, I guess probably Yandy Diaz have really been terrible in the postseason. But also I think that just speaks to the lineup in general, because as you just said, their best hitters are, you know, Willie Adamas, Yandy Diaz. I think that, uh, and Brandon Lau, I think that Austin Meadows is, is really one of their best hitters, but he didn't play a ton of games. But yeah. anyway, you slice it. I mean, they are piecing together. And I agree with you 100%. Um, so that's also my take here. But they are piecing together lineups that include G-Man Choi's of the world and um, and Manuel Margot's and Hunter Renfro's and Joey Wendell's and Michael Brousseau's. It's tough. And, and of course, Randy Rosarena, who has been their godsend in the playoffs. Well, that's where I was. that's where I was coming with this is that while I'm worried about the Rays because the Dodgers are like a historically good team, the Dodgers are just an amazing team. Um, I'm worried. So I'm worried about the Rays. I would be more worried if they had gotten to this point without singular heroics. The fact that Randy Rosarena continues to be just lightning hot makes me feel a little better because at least now they have someone they can turn to. So the question is, Less for me about the whole lineup and more for me. If Randy keeps going, I feel good. If he doesn't, they obviously still have a chance. They can put together hits and they can score runs. But if Randy doesn't have it going, I have a hard time seeing any of these other guys getting on the type of heater that they would need to compete with the Dodgers here. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, the Braves were a team that could slug with the Dodgers. I don't, right. see, I don't see the Rays winning a game like, eight to seven against the Dodgers. Like, it, I mean, obviously it could happen. Like, you know, there are crazy baseball games, but it's just like, if the Rays don't get like, if their pitching doesn't like really hold up every day, it's hard to see them winning these games. I mean, for example, like they're down six, one now, and it really just feels like they're out of this game. Yeah. I mean, that's how world series feel though. But yeah. Again, here, sending Kershaw out. I think this is actually the perfect scenario to discuss what we were discussing because they just sent Kershaw back out for the top of the sixth. He undoubtedly is in territory where he's going to get hit here. But also, they're up five runs. So at what point does Dave Roberts say, okay, he doesn't look that good, but we want to save an inning from some other reliever? These are the tough decisions. He's already made defensive replacements, moving Chris Taylor to left field. Um, taking out Jock Peterson and moving Kike Hernandez to second base. Um, so the wheels are turning here. We'll have to see how this plays out. But yeah, the lineup is a concern. But again, in, in typical Rays fashion, and this is true of both the bullpen and the lineup, the starters obviously have some studs on them. But the bullpen and the lineup both are comprised of random-ish guys who are just good at playing baseball and they get the most out of them. Um, their, their hitting was ugly in the ALCS. It was pretty ugly in the ALDS. Um, and so I agree with your concern, Sam, are they going to hit enough? So to round this out, the Dodgers are definitely going to hit. 
are they going to have the starting pitching and are they going to have the relievers to back them up um, enough to close this series out without concern? The Rays are going to have starting pitching going that will be competitive almost every night. They will find a way to use their bullpen in a way that stymies the Dodgers to an extent. Both teams will play tremendous defense. We haven't talked about this, but these are probably the two best defensive teams. Yeah, that, that's totally right. Yeah, they're incredible. Um, as Justin Turner literally makes a diving play right in front of us. And the question for the Rays is, are they going to be able to hit? Even if the Dodgers don't come out with superb pitching, can they capitalize? Do they have the players to do that on this stage? I don't know, but I got to tell you, I love this series. Either way, we get something nice. The Dodgers kind of deserve one at this point, Sam. Like they've just been here so many times. They've lost so many times with really, really good teams. Not like they've gotten lucky and been here a number of times. Like they're really good. Um, No one deserves a World Series, but the Dodgers are definitely as close as you can get. The Rays, on the other hand, are this small market, analytical-minded team who we all love to watch be like sneaky good. Um, and if they win it, I just think it would be super cool for baseball. Um, either way, we're going to have a great series here, uh, and we're going to keep you guys updated with the off days that we do have. We'll probably catch you in the middle. Um, I mean, before we, before we sign off, who's winning this? How many games? Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't signing off yet. I I was just giving you a a kind of waxing poetic about what we're about to see. But now that I've said all that, if I was a betting man, I'm taking the Rays, which before this game, I think they were like plus 165 to win the series. After this game, they might be up to plus 350. I'm still taking them at that. um, As Kershaw throws a one, two, three, sixth inning to make me sound like a fool. Um, but if I'm just guessing who's going to win, especially with the Dodgers up six, one, I take the Dodgers in six games. I was also going to go Dodgers in six. And I totally agree with your point. Like I would love to see either of these teams win. They're just examples of organizations that build smartly, that understand the value of depth, that understand the value of analytics. They sort of do it on opposite ends of the financial spectrum where the Dodgers are this big market team that are willing to spend a lot of money and the Rays have to operate sort of on a shoestring budget. But they are also sort of one and the same. I mean, the Dodgers GM Andrew Friedman is sort of uh, yeah. from the Rays organization originally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, like, you know, I would I also think the Dodgers are the better team. I think they're probably one of the best baseball teams we've had in the last, you know, 20 years. Uh, Maybe ever. Maybe, yeah. One of the all-time greatest baseball teams ever assembled. They're so good. Uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm also picking the Dodgers, but I'm just, you know, I, I hope it's a great series. Like, I don't want to see, like, a, you know, the Dodgers sweep it. Like, I'd like to see it get dragged out a bit. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm hoping we see seven. My, my guess is for six. Um, also, can, I think can, both can Dave Roberts up. just can Dave Roberts just take Clayton out now? Like just no, he's he's going to throw him another inning. He got out of that easy. He's going to put him out there for the seventh. They're going to score three runs. It's going to be a two-run ball game. Um, but before I can be proven wrong, Sam, we have to leave. I can't let this go on long <laughs> enough for us to see me be wrong again. Um, thank you guys for coming. This has been a throwback to our older episodes. Who knows? We may go back to this format. 
Um, if you like one or the other, if you just want to talk to us, if you want to ask questions and be featured on the show, uh, reach out to us at thealonzobet at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, thealonzobet. Um, and with that, thank you all very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. Have a good week, folks. <laughs>